0: Well, good morning. Prayers continuing to arise for the people of Beirut and for uh, all of those ministries that are on the ground in Lebanon. Um, Our heart goes out uh, even as our prayers arise and help begins to pour in. The numbers continue to climb. In the city of some two million we are hearing from World Magazine that the uh, – from Mindy Beltz, who, by the way, Mindy Bells, if you don't follow her um, on social media, she's a really good follow, particularly when we're talking about international headline news uh, from a Christian worldview. Uh, Bells is spelled B-E-L-Z. Um, also following uh, Robert Nicholson, uh, who heads up the Philos Project. They have um, Philos Fellows in Beirut, and uh, they they are worthy of following – in this conversation as well. The satellite images you have probably seen are really extraordinary. Um, and one of the quotes, one of the takeaways from my reading yesterday uh, is from Dr. Raja Ashu. He's the head of radiology at the St. George Hospital University Medical Center in the city of Beirut. Four nurses and at least 13 patients were killed. Uh, that is one of the three hospitals that uh, was Really destroyed in this uh, in this event catastrophic event uh, it's an explosion, and so it's it's it, and and culpability is going to rest with with the government in this case with the Lebanese government for having left so many explosive materials uh contained for years years over years um in these facilities at the port confiscated off of international ships, things that contraband that was coming into the country illegally. Um, and, in this case, more than uh, twenty seven hundred metric tons, which by the way, a metric ton is bigger than a uh, heavier bigger than a than a ton that you and I think of um, of of ammonium nitrate uh, this very very explosive material uh, so anyway, uh, we will be looking at conversations related to responsibility, culpability, people will be held responsible. The army has taken over responsibility for the site, but the site is uh, massively large. And so it'll be interesting to see um, how, you know, how that all works. Uh, Dr. Raja Ashu, again, I should be praying for the folks on the front lines. He's the head of radiology uh, at the St. George Hospital uh, Medical Center there in Beirut. And he says, for us, for us, this is as bad as September 11. For us, this is as bad as September 11." Um, and I think he's trying to help Americans have a perspective. Uh, this did happen in a port city. This did happen in the largest city uh, in their country. Um, this happened uh, at, their, at the, the financial center of who they are and the cultural center of who they are. Um, and so if if your heart and mind can return um, in spirit to September 11 and how you felt and where you were, it will help you empathize with those who are in Beirut right now, who are in Lebanon right now, across the whole country, and for all those who love those who live there. So let's continue to raise our prayers and let's continue to look for ways to reach out and be helpful. There are a number of English-speaking evangelical churches in the city of Beirut, and so if your church is looking for a church to connect with, those connections are certainly possible. All right. uh, First up this morning in terms of my conversations is Ben Johnson. Love talking with him. He and I are going to talk across a number of news headlines related to the First and the Second Amendments. We'll be right back.
2: This is my right right given by God to live a free life to live in freedom
0: joining me now Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute you can follow him on Twitter at the rights writer and he's up right now
1: Ben welcome back good to be with you Carmen good morning
0: uh, good morning. I just told everybody on Twitter that I was going to ask you, uh, what do my American rights and my Christian convictions and COVID-19 have to do with each other?
1: Yeah. And, so I've and, now asked. Right. And and th- really, the the two have a great deal uh, to do with one another. The, uh, the origin of American rights is the understanding that our rights come from God. Uh, it was very much embedded in the founding of this country, that whatever rights we enjoy, uh, they... They have been given to us in a way that is unalienable. They cannot be taken away from us because they don't come from government. And because of that, governments are instituted to protect those rights. Uh, These rights, though, are pre-existing, pre-political, and cannot be stripped from us by any authority. And so it was the Christian founders and their faith, predominantly the Christian faith. Yes, there were some deists. Yes, there were a few whose faith was was, uh, dubious, even even uh, Thomas Paine, who was undeniably not a a person of faith, but the vast majority were lowercase o orthodox Christians who believed in this Christian worldview, which gave them the belief of rights that is embedded in the superstructure of our founding documents, especially the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And where there's tension with that in our present culture, uh, a lot of it has to do with crackdowns, uh, like in COVID-19, where you have governments stepping in and banning either all worship services, as John McCarthy was dealing with in California, or certain aspects of worship services, like whether you have the right to worship God through songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So there's some tension because of that. Where the two are in tension, uh, the Christian rights that have been given to us by God supersede any word of man.
0: So when we talk about inalienable rights, um, you know most people think of that as as language that comes uh, to us from the Declaration of Independence, but we're actually talking about rights that are are not exclusively American. We're talking about people who identified rights that are inalienable, rights that we that we do have because of the nature of who God is and how He has created us, um, and the freedoms uh, that He has given us to enjoy. Um, when we Translate that into our our contemporary life together. So I want you know I want to take us from like the acknowledgement that these inalienable rights exist and they are concretized for us uh, as Americans in our Constitution. Um, we then have the expressions of them, which we might call the First Amendment, we might call it the Second Amendment, um, and that's I think where the rub starts to happen in our conversations today. Uh, People will recognize the language that's there, but it's the way that um, we are living out those values that seems to be in very real conflict.
1: There's a tremendous amount of rights inflation where everything's become a right. Uh, So the the, sort of the template that has emerged is anything that I want or desire uh, is an inalienable right that the government has to pay for. Anything I don't like should be banned. And that has that has crept in tandem with the fact that The Christian religion has been receding. You have this high level of of nuns, uh, people who are not associated with any religious tradition. That's not to say that they're atheists or agnostics, actually most of them believe in some kind of ill-defined higher power, but they don't belong to a specific religious tradition uh, that would be able to inform that to a greater degree of specificity uh, the way that the Founding Fathers did. So uh, you're seeing this tension play out in our society When it comes to the First Amendment, there's a question of whether we have the right to have certain controversial opinions on on issues which were not very controversial just a few years ago, Uh, certainly whether it's a very public issue like, uh, for example, in Idaho, Idaho's passed a bill called the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, and what that says is that women uh, who are biological women only have to compete in sports against other biological women. Now, 300 uh, female athletes have signed a letter uh, urging the NAACP uh, to respect the state of Idaho because the NAACP has said it's going to boycott or may boycott the state of Idaho over this law if it if it uh, comes about. There's a group called Outsports, which is uh, um, an LGBTQIA+, etc., etc., uh, organization, which has said that uh, it wants the names of everyone who has signed that Released now, some of the people who signed it have come forward, like Martina Navratilova, uh, Wimbledon great tennis star, used to uh, defeat uh, Chris Everett Lloyd, and they they traded the title back and forth several years in the 1980s, uh, who is a lesbian, but has been very out front uh, about this in the fact that she said that it's it's not fair to, that uh, one one person might have a biological advantage that cannot be eradicated through the taking of of uh, medication regardless of of how things are going. Hormonal treatments don't completely erase the biological advantage that uh, men have 40 percent more upper body strength than women. It simply doesn't change. And when you look at um, states where boys are competing against girls, uh, for example in Connecticut, uh, you had boys who couldn't place who were defeating girls. So they said this isn't fair, but Outsports wants everyone's name released to the public. Now you have the right to make a controversial statement, but in this country, you also cannot be compelled to speak. Uh, That is to say, you can't be publicly named and shamed. If you remember what happened to Brendan Eich of Mozilla, he was forced out of a company that he helped found uh, because he took a position on marriage that was so popular, it passed in the state of California at the time that he was financing it. But uh, in this day and age, Uh, People are losing their jobs for taking very non-controversial stands. I imagine it's really not that controversial a position in Idaho or anywhere else in the country, regardless of how, how much compassion you may have to people who are struggling with gender dysphoria. So there's this First Amendment tension here that you have the right to speak, but you shouldn't be compelled to speak, and you shouldn't necessarily be named and shamed. Uh, you remember this uh, poll that has come out that two thirds of Americans say they 're afraid to say anything political uh, they 're afraid they have views that they're afraid to express in the public realm because they are afraid of being punished for them. And this is certainly one example of that
0: If you want to read more about this uh, the the outsports coverage of this they are the uh, they are the group that uh, has posted the names of all of the female athletes who signed this letter. Um, it's called doxing when you make public information uh, that was intended to remain private uh, by people who who have the right to the freedom of expression, and they also have the right to not have their personal information posted all over the Internet um, with the threat of retribution. Um, the, other, the other thing that stands out to me in this reporting um, is the way that organizations are characterized and how um, in a supposed news report you could refer to an organization like the Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, which, you know, we, we've we platformed people from ADF here on this platform. Uh, in fact, Christina Holcomb, who is named in this article, um, the Alliance Defending Freedom is characterized in this piece as the extremist hate
1: group. Ew, the I mean, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center uh, has has mm-hmm. uh, put out this orga- you know, organization of of uh, hate groups many years past. And the, the first time that uh, my eyebrows were raised was when the ADF was listed alongside the late Dr. D. James Kennedy, who is probably the most gentle individual who has ever walked the face of the earth. Uh, I've never heard anything hateful from his lips, and I, I watch probably every sermon he's ever given over 30 years. Uh, but he was listed as as a leader of a hate group. And of course, we know that the Family Research Center was shot up by a, a terrorist who was using the SPLC list. Uh, so there, there is this this mischaracterization of people who reach out in love and compassion because of their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in traditional Christian morality, say, we love everyone, we love every human being, but we cannot condone certain kinds of behavior because this is embedded in that same Faith That gives you the unalienable right to disagree with me, the unalienable right to speak out and say that I'm wrong, the unalienable right to say that I'm a, a hate uh, group, even though I'm not a member of a hate group. I love you because of the teachings uh, of, of this religion that gives us the freedom that's embedded in our culture. So that's a part of it. It's, it's an expression of what Alexis de Tocqueville called soft despotism, where in the United States, he said, we don't have formal structures where people are compelled to say things but in our culture we don't like dissidents we don't like people who disagree or go against the grain and when it's a judeo-christian point of view uh, we we had a very difficult time with people who did not accept that free thinkers and and uh, atheists now that uh, the culture is turning in the opposite direction that same soft despotism is being used against the people who created the freedom uh, that was supposed to be at the heart of all this we need to go back to the idea that we can love the sinner hate the sin And that's true regardless of what you define as sin, whether you believe Mm -hmm. that LGBT is sin or whether you believe uh, speaking out in favor of traditional morality is sin. We should all love one another.
0: All right. uh, Ben Johnson and I have to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, education and teachers unions and COVID-19 here in the United States of America. We'll be right back. (music) Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute, you can find him at acton.org. Ben, let's talk about uh, let's talk about education in America. Um, let's t- talk about where the responsibility for education rightly lies, uh, and then let's talk about the way teachers' unions, um, at least in some cases, are basically extorting us in relationship to COVID nineteen. Uh,
1: education is one of the premier and most important rights that parents have, and one of the biggest duties and responsibilities we have as parents is to assure that we raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but also to give them all of the secular information that they need in order to thrive and to use the God-given gifts that they've been given for the upbuilding of the body of Christ and the betterment of the rest of the world around us. Uh, Education is the way that we do that, and some people choose to go through public education, some people through private or charter or online, and more and more people are losing the right to any of those because of the teachers' unions. Uh, so uh, they, the unions have these this wonderful sort of Orwellian uh, phraseology that they're going on what's called a safety strike, uh, that for the safety of students and others, they refuse to teach others. They still wish to get the, their full paycheck, of course, but and, and quite often, they are demanding $100 million, $100 billion of additional investment in education. Uh, but even then, they don't say that they will necessarily go back to school. Uh, they simply are demanding this. In some cases, they're demanding things that are completely and utterly unrelated to education, things like a demand of rent moratoriums, mortgage moratoriums. Uh, there will be no further shutoffs, uh, a, de- a moratorium on all new charter schools so that there's no competition Uh, And uh, quite often the teachers unions like uh, the AFT and the NEA are standing alongside very few other allies, with the exception of the Democratic Socialists of America, in making these demands. Uh, In areas where they have a lot of political control, uh, particularly in blue states and in uh, large urban areas that are controlled by, uh, by union machinery, they've been able to enforce some of these conditions on private schools. So in New Jersey, for example... Uh, public schools are remote only, and so private schools have to be remote and online too. Uh, even though they aren't, uh, they aren't making that request on their own. The governor is forcing that on them. Uh, Milwaukee is a particularly egregious example, where private schools want to reopen, and yet uh, the uh, the public school system uh, has said that since they can't meet certain certain benchmarks and they're not able to open up, private schools shouldn't be able to either. Uh, and you have the exact same thing happening in the state of California. So in, in point of fact, we have an ed, a union educational system that has made teachers in in many cases, uh, those who, who are going along with uh, the union and along with the strikes, it's placed them in an adversarial relationship with parents. Uh, And it's made it impossible for parents to educate, to uh, do their duty of educating students. It's put them in an adversarial relationship with everyone who pays their salary, which is all taxpayers. Uh, Frankly, Franklin Delano Roosevelt understood we should never have a public sector union. Private sector unions are are another thing. But a public sector union says that uh, the the policies that have been voted on are not good enough, that uh, that's a starting bid and uh, and we should distort things even more. Uh, I think that uh, this is going to boomerang in a very big way. I think there are going to be structural changes that come out as a result of everything that's happening right now. I think that a lot of women have, have always said that they would like to spend at least some more time at home with their children. And to the extent that they can, I think this is going to allow them to make changes in their lives so that they can spend additional time in, at home. And those who wanted to homeschool, I think you're going to see a major upswing in in homeschooling, because people are going to get a taste of this and realize they like this traditional lifestyle, I think it's going to boomerang 100 degrees or 180 degrees,
0: and thus possibly the renewal begins. Right? I mean, it, it, reclaiming education and bringing education back into the home and under uh, under the authority and guidance of parents would be a huge reclamation uh, of the next generation by everyday Americans. I mean, something that we just completely conceded to the government, which has done it poorly, um, we are in, in many, many places and in many ways reclaiming uh, as a as a responsibility at home today. And, and COVID-19 has really made that happen. So, Ben, you and I got to leave it right there. Um, thank you so much, uh, as always, for your contribution to the conversation. Ben and I did not get to headlines related to spiking gun sales across America. So give, uh, give the Second Amendment some attention in your conversations of the day as well. Uh, that is Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. We'll be right back. Are you, like me, uh, dissatisfied in a, in a way that reflects the dissatisfaction of God, right? So, like, am I divinely dissatisfied, with the disunity that uh, I witness and experience among Christians today. Are you dissatisfied with that? I mean, Scripture declares a unity of spirit and a bond of peace. Scripture declares that the way that we love one another as Christians is going to be the testimony that reflects to the rest of the world not only who we are, but who God is in Jesus Christ. Uh, grace and love and, uh, and who... So, if you um, are dissatisfied at a divine level, with the disunity uh, that you witness and experience in the life of the church today, let me tell you this next conversation is for you. Erwin Entz uh, is not only the first African-American to be named as moderator of the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, he is also the pastor of a beautifully diverse congregation in, uh, in D.C., and he's also the author of The Beautiful Community, and he's my next guest, Erwin Entz. Up next.
1: I grew up in a three-channel world. I'm not talking about television channels. I'm talking about communicating. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Remember when there were three ways to communicate? Face-to-face conversations, a written letter, or a phone call? That's it. Now we have countless forms of engagement, and they're updating all the time. Most of us use the three-channel approach, but teens do not. Some of the new technology leads to a lack of deep connection. Does your teen stick to short one-liners through text or Twitter? Have you noticed that they're great at broadcasting their thoughts, but out of practice when it comes to listening? Maybe it's time to have a little more face-to-face time with your teen. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtoday'steens.org.
0: We make a miracle walker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. Thrilled to be welcoming Irwin Enns Jr. He is—he's uh, a pastor. He's now also an author. The book is "The Beautiful Community: Unity, Diversity, and the Church at Its Best." Irwin, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Thank you so much, Carmen. It's a pleasure to uh, to be joining you this morning.
0: It is uh, it's a joy to uh, to have the privilege of speaking with you. Um, I am among those who were celebrating from a distance uh, your service as the moderator of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of America. Um Roy Taylor's a, a good you. friend and I'm just um, uh just I'm just thrilled to uh, I'm yeah, it's a it's yeah. it's a grace. It's a grace.
2: That's that's so great. That's so great. I I love Roy Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful mother. Yeah.
0: So let's um let's do this. Cast the vision for us of uh of the church as the beautiful community because I think that until we can until we can grasp it in our mind's eye, it's really hard to imagine that we're going to do the hard work of living it out.
2: Right. Great. Yes. And the vision for the beautiful community, unity and diversity uh, for God's people is rooted in what it means for us to be the image of God. So the the, the God that we worship is himself beautiful community. He is unit, unity in diversity, diversity in unity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We worship the triune God of glory and grace. And that has implications for what, what the Lord means when he says in Genesis, let us make man in our image according to uh, our likeness. And, uh, and so human destiny was to be in beautiful community. And so it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be shocking to us when we find um, Revelation 5 and 7 and 21 talking about the nations, um, every tribe and tongue and people um, and nation uh, worshiping the Lamb and um, and the tree of life in, in Revelation 21 and 22 and the in the new, the holy city, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations, and so uh, this was where this is where God is taking humanity anyway, and the question becomes, are are we as His people going to be uh, embracing and pursuing this kind of kingdom mission as a witness uh, to the world? And one more thing, I'll, I'll, I am a pastor, so I go. Run-on answers. So, um, the, the the this and this this thread it fa- it runs through the scripture. So even after our fall into sin, right, uh, we have the division of humanity in, in by because of our rebellion at Babel. Like God comes down in in judgment and in mercy. And he confuses our language, and he, uh, it says in Genesis 11, from there the Lord dispersed them over the the face of the earth. But then you get the promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, which is a promise of blessing and reunion, when he says um, uh, 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 that in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is Genesis 12. All those families of the earth I just dispersed because of their sinful rebellion, I'm going to bring them back in you, Abram, in your descendant, in your seed, whom we know is Jesus Christ. And so when the Lord, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, when he begins praying for um, for his church, he, he prays for his d- disciples who follow him in his earthly ministry. And then in verse 20, he begins to pray. He says, for those who will believe in me through their word right through that apostolic work through for us and over and over again that they may be one father as you and I are one I and them you and me they may become perfectly one so that the world may believe that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me and what Jesus is is referencing there in his prayer to the father is, is not some new idea, but what he has on his mind is that great confession of faith, the, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? He's praying that his people would have that same oneness that he shares with the Father. And so this is this is God's plan. It's not ours. And the question is, are we on board with his plan? So long answer, but there you go.
0: No, that's uh it's as you're talking. First of all, um we have had conversations here with DA Horton about his book mm-hmm. Intentional mm-hmm. Kingdom Ethnicity uh-huh. in a Divided World. Um mm-hmm. we just talked with uh Josh Laxton from uh the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton um on this thing that he wrote about the convergence of the Missio Dei and the Imago Dei. Mm-hmm. Um and so I'm just saying that like God, God is lifting up this, uh, this truth, this message, this vision yeah. um, in a number yeah. of places and through a number of voices. And I got to tell you, when I see that happening, when I see God mm-hmm. like stirring the hearts and minds of, uh, you know, of people from different uh spheres of influence within the Christian church and they yeah. are literally reading off the same Holy Spirit page. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just say to myself, okay, God is doing something here. Yeah. We must we must pay attention. Um I I share your divine dissatisfaction mm-hmm. with uh mm-hmm. with the brokenness uh that is in evidence. I witness it, I experience it um among mm-hmm. believers today. And so yeah. um it it is not reflective of who god is and it's not reflective right. of godliness um right. so for you this so much of this is an outgrowth of um the fullness of the expression of what i would point to as covenant theology um i am mm-hmm. reading i am reading you as a student of covenant theology am i reading you right
2: you you are yes <laughs> yes you are reading me 100% rightly i i i I think this is the—I say that this is the—this pursuit is the natural outworking of a rich covenantal theological framework and commitment, that, that this is what we pursue if we're committed to this as the—as the, as the uh, our understanding of the unfolding of the story of Scripture. Yeah.
0: So for those um, who might be new to that language, um, unpack for them what covenant theology sure. is so that they yeah. understand how this is a natural outworking of it.
2: Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. The, the Lord, God God relates to us by way of covenant. This is, and this is not contract. (laughs) This is uh, about a a covenantal commitment out of a love, right? That he has for his creation and for his creatures. And so this, so we are um, now we our only hope is, is, is rooted in this truth. Um, that there is a covenant of grace right that uh that we are rebellious that we we are we owe God by the very fact that we are created by him, we owe him fidelity and uh and love and um and obedience, and we don't give it to him, but God is not content to leave us in that uh in that condition uh and so uh he brings us to himself, adopts us into his family. Um, sh- by sheer grace, right, um, through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is a covenantal commitment, and it has always been. So when he—I I spoke about Abraham earlier, the call of Abraham in the end of Genesis 11 and Genesis chapter 12. Abraham wasn't thinking about the Lord. Abraham wasn't out seeking for uh, for God. God decided that he was going to redeem and renew, and so he called Abram to himself. And he made a covenant promise with Abraham. And, and we see this begin to take shape and form. This covenant with Abraham follows the covenant God made with Noah, where he says he's, he's no longer going to destroy the earth by means uh, of a flood. He won't do that um, again. And he gave the covenant sign of the, of the rainbow. And then he calls Abraham, gives Abraham a covenant sign of circumcision. Um, and then we see the co- covenant continue to unfold through Moses um, and, and in the deliverance of the people of Israel in in Exodus and then it continues to expand through through David when he promises David he's going to have a son on the throne uh, forever and all, right, all of these covenantal signs and commitments they point to the Lord Jesus right um, and and he became, becomes comes the focal point uh, of this of this covenantal commitment that the Lord has. And so, uh, and and once Christ comes, right, and he, right, and we hear the Lord do uh, say things like, again, John 17, Father, I've completed the work you gave me to do, right? I did not come to do my will. I came to do the will of him who sent me, right? And then from there, you see this, the expansion um, of, of peoples that God draws to himself, through faith in Jesus Christ. This is all an outworking of God's um, covenantal commitment to renew, to redeem um, a people for himself, and even to redeem the entire cosmos for his glory.
0: I am talking with Pastor Erwin Entz. We are talking about his new book, The Beautiful Community. Uh, We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. (laughs) My producer, Paul, tells me we actually have books to give away. So if you've been listening to this, you've been furiously taking notes and you have been uh, scavenging around the Internet looking for Irwin Entz. First of all, Irwin (laughs) and Entz both start with an I. Uh, And if you're looking for the beautiful community and you you want a copy, go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Just text the word book, just the word book. Not all the reasons we should send you one. uh, Just the word book. (laughs) To eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. 933 Okay, so first of all, let me just ask this. If the book had a soundtrack, what would the mm. song—what would, like, the, the lead-off song be?
2: Oh, my what would the title? What would the
0: title <laughs> track be?
2: Yes, that's a great question. Now, this is going to be my own preferences here. Um, two, two things that take me—so, um, one— Um, I, I mentioned in the book, my son, um, whose stage name is so chill. Uh, he's a, he's a musician and an artist and he, he wrote a uh, album. uh, Well, this is several years ago, his sophomore year in college is, I call it his first major project called I Heard God Laughing. And he has this, um, this poem called "The Beloved's Intro" in in his opening song, and he taught it's a it's a poem about um, beauty and simplicity as he's you know imagines himself gazing into the night night sky. So that song is always on my mind as I think about beautiful community. It speaks about the, our desire for beauty, the frustration of attaining it, um, and then I'm a I'm a I'm a jazz enthusiast, so um certain uh, certain songs particularly john coltrane so certain um songs of his um kind of put me in the frame of mind that so that that reflects a sense of joy at the, at the creative genius (laughs) of God in giving us things like music. And so, uh, so he has this song Afro blue, which is my favorite one uh, of his that, that I listen to uh, at least once, once a week. Um, And so, and so, yeah, so those are some of the, those are some of the songs that, that, uh, that come to my mind as I think about um, beautiful community. There's a, there's a there's another there's a hymn um as well that I always uh I will I play for um one of my class or whenever I have an opportunity you know in Christ there is no east or west and um the one of the pastors at my church uh Joel Littlepage and uh, his wife Melissa they're also musicians and he they recast that um that hymn to a new tune, and they added a chorus that says, "Join hands then, members of the faith, whatever your race may be, who serves my father as his child, is surely kin to me, and so mm-hmm. this is a song about rec- a hymn about reconciliation and you know reunion and renewal um and so anyway those are those are those are a few. You know, as as again, I'd say I'm a pastor. So you ask me a question, I'll give you one thing, I'll give you five. No, it's
0: good. It's good. Now you get, see, you gave me you gave me all of the music necessary to uh, create an entire service around it. Right? There you that's go. that's how this is supposed to go. work. It's three three hymns, right? Yeah,
2: so, there you go.
0: for um for listeners who right now are trying to find uh, so chill on SoundCloud, you can uh, you yeah. can actually check out "I Heard God Laughing." You just need to know that "so chill" is spelled as if the word "so" is French. S-E-A-U-X. So chill. Right. Um, all right. Uh, so I would add to the soundtrack. Now this will give away like oh, this is probably just like horribly revealing about um, about my <laughs> musical taste. Keith Green has this chorus. Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see.
1: Uh,
0: when, mm-hmm. Whenever, whenever your eyes are on this child, your yeah. grace abounds to me.
1: Yeah. And
0: um yes. and so for me, the the connection between this beauty, how beautiful God is as Father, yes. Son, and Holy Spirit, how fully unified God is in his own diversity, like how this community yes. exists among, among the Trinity. And it's yes. the beauty of the Father's face. It's the beauty of the face mm-hmm. of the Son. It's the beauty of the face of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. All of that together, when I'm focused on him and I can catch a glimpse of that, man, that is grace. Yes. That yes. is yes. grace.
2: Yeah. So that's absolutely. what you're talking
0: about us accessing yes. not only individually, but then recognizing Look, God has that same face turned toward every other yes. person.
2: Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes. That yeah. that and that that adds that ref that that reflects the glory of God to this world. Right. And that that aspect, that type of unity and diversity, um, again, it's God's creative genius. He's the one who who made this diversity, right? He, he did it and he did it on purpose um, because we were created to reflect his glory to the creation,
0: right? Amen. All right, I just love it. I hope that there is opportunity yeah. in the future for you and I to visit again. Um, love to meet Absolutely. you in person one day. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Let's, uh, Let's give uh, let's give a shout out to what you guys are doing um, at uh, in DC. Do we you want me to, you want me yes. to send people to um, Grace DC Network or you want me to send them to Grace DC Institute for cross cultural mission?
2: Yes, to the the institute would be the preference. Awesome. So Grace DC dot Institute would be the place to go. Yeah.
0: There you go. If you want to uh, see how it's done and learn how to do it, Grace Dc.institute. The book is "The Beautiful Community." Pastor Irwin Entz Jr. is the author. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen.
2: Thank you, Carmen. Have a it's great day. It's a pleasure. Day.
0: You too. We'll be right back. All right. If you loved what you heard uh, from Pastor Irwin and you'd like uh, a copy of the book, text the word book to 877-933-2484. The book is The Beautiful Community, Unity, Diversity, and the Church at Its Best. It is um, it is a Bible study. It's also vision casting and a how-to uh, in how to live into these realities. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Peter Kapsner, I know your fan favorite, will be here shortly.